Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tahema Lopez-Bunyasi and Candice Watts-Smith, and they're here to talk about their new book from NYU Press in 2019, Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. This is a really fascinating book that combines political science scholarship um, along with social movement scholarship as well as information and directions about activism. But I'm going to let Tehema and Candace talk about that. First, I'd like, to, um, I'd like to welcome both of them to the show and ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves. Thanks, Lily, for having us on. Um, this is Candace. I am Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Um, my research focuses on identity and politics, and I study racial attitudes, especially among millennials. Um, and I'm just a regular person also who walks through this world as a Black woman and a mother of a Black son and a wife. Um, and so most of the work that I do um, tries to address questions that would improve the lives of the people in my community. And my name is Tehama. Um, I'm an assistant professor of conflict analysis and resolution at George Mason University. Um, I am a political scientist, and my work um, largely focuses um, on race and ethnic politics in the United States, um, public opinion, some political behavior, and um, a big focus of mine is often about whiteness and white supremacy, um, also um, racial ideologies. And, um, and so I am biracial. My mother is white. My father is Mexican American. Um, and I am also part of a multiracial family. And, um, so even prior to having my multiracial family, um, I've been, you know, I think it's really important to think about how even people who are not black, um, are impacted, by anti-black racism, and it's usually as um, being advantaged by it in some way, but it, it is also clearly also being harmed. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted I wanted to um, to be involved in this project because I think it's imperative for um, for getting our country on on a better track. And and this book is really useful in lots of ways, but it also it brings a reader into the discussion of the Black Lives Matter movement um, as a social movement and a discussion of it as a social movement. But I, I'd be really curious to know how each of you came together to write this book in particular, even though it does build on a lot of your research, because it also goes in the direction of activism um, and, you know, sort of taking the the reader um, to areas and thinking about how to be involved in being um, anti-racist, being less racist, 
um, and and sort of understanding how we see race in different perspectives as well. So NYU Press asked me if I wanted to write a book about Black Lives Matter, which at that time I didn't. And, and, and you know, a kind of traditional text about the social movement itself. And I thought that maybe it would be more important to write about why the movement exists in the first place. Um, and, you know, just thinking about my students and, you know, just the people that you talk to in the grocery store um, and our colleagues um, who are who at that time um, Obama was was the president. And so how is it that we had a black president and also a movement um, that uh, suggested that black lives didn't matter? And I think for a lot of people at that time were um, really confused about, you know, like a sense of cognitive dissonance. How could both of these things be happening um, simultaneously? And so, you know, and just thinking about the ways that people, the media, our students, our colleagues, um, you know, just people around us were talking about questions of inequality. My sense was that people just really um, had a kind of very myopic understanding of racism um, and inequality. And so I, I was hoping to take the opportunity to perhaps broaden those. And, and I asked Tehima um, if she would be willing to do it with me, because Tehima, aside from being an optimist, is just really a clear thinker about um, questions of justice. Um, and so I, I wanted to do it with her because I knew that she would have a different perspective than me, and also um, one that would complement, um, you know, some of the skills and experiences and perspective that I had with the skills and experiences and, and perspective that she's gained um, both inside and outside the, the classroom. Um, yes. And so one of the things that was also going on at the time that Candace was approached was um she and I were starting to formulate questions to go onto the CMPS, which is a huge um, collaborative study of lots of political scientists putting on questions about mainly about race um, and ethnicity. And, um, and so we were, we were interested in putting on questions about people's attitudes about BLM, but we, but, but given, given the opportunity to write a book um, and, and Candace's really great vision of thinking, well, you know, what should this book really be about? Um, it became a really great opportunity for us to write a book that we really wanted to teach, right? Think about how we could have conversations that weren't, um, other texts weren't lending themselves to quite as easily. And so we wanted to really bridge the gap in a way and, and also empower other people who were like facilitating conversations about um, these really tricky subject matter to, you know, fill make them feel like they had a tool with them, right. To, to get to those questions and have those conversations. So it was, it was great timing. And I, um, I am so, I'm so grateful that Candace invited me to be part of this. It's, it's a really interesting book and I can certainly see how it would be one that, you know, to some degree, I don't want to say solves the problem, but certainly is one that can easily be used in a classroom. Um, because it is, it is open and accessible in terms of explaining and defining. There's a lot of really nice, um, graphics and images within it. Um, but I also wanted to ask you because one of the chapters that I found to be really useful and, and, 
kind of important in ways that I hadn't expected is chapter two, all the words people throw around. Um, And this is what I thought was also amazing for students. Can you talk about how you ended up with having this particular chapter um, that provides definitions for many of us? So my, okay. It comes from two things. One is that I think generally speaking on questions of racism, um, people are often using the same word to mean totally different things. And that could be the same for a number of, of, of concepts that we use every day, freedom, liberty, equality, that people have completely different understandings. Um, they're, they're using the words to mean different things. And so we're talking past each other in some way. And so I felt, um, you know, like we should address that. The second thing uh, is that I think that there, I noticed among my students and folks in the media too, who are kind of woker than now, who um, are often really uh, dogmatic. I think that's the word that I'm looking for about what exactly a word means. And if you don't understand it the way they understand it, then you don't get to talk. And so um, Tehama and I were just even talking amongst ourselves that there are words and concepts that we understand differently. And so what happens if we just kind of lay out some of the things and and even just have a conversation about having a conversation (laughs) across lines of differences and that maybe there are some ways that we can first model the idea that, hey, you know what, turns out that... um, we, we have different ways of, of talking and thinking through these issues. Um, and maybe we can um, pin down a common language. Um, so that was kind of the, the, the impetus, would you say, Tay? I, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like there needed to be um, an opportunity in the book to not only establish certain facts. So like, you know, so the first entry is affirmative action. And we just do this alphabetically. And there are certain facts that just need to be established, such as quotas are not used for affirmative action any longer. And a lot of people think that they are. And so, you know, how does that misunderstanding shape an entire conversation? Um, And so then it's about establishing facts where they exist, right? And then also recognizing different perspectives, which is exactly what Candace is saying. Um, Also, bringing, um, bringing language to certain concepts that some people may... Um, it, it hasn't been concretized because they didn't have a language for it. So I think gaslighting has been helpful for people or black girl magic or massage noir, this idea that, that black women in particular um, are targets of certain animus because of their race and gender, right? And that these words, some of these words were like literally kind of invented in pop culture or just recently. Um, and so we wanted to shine a little light on that. Um, and it was, I have to say, it was one of the more fun chapters to get going because we, as I remember, um, we kind of created a list of these kind of words. And then we sat on um, on kind of a rooftop area at UNC on a building and we started recording a conversation between us. Like, how do we talk about these things? And we went from there. And so th- I, I, that's not usually how I write, <laughs> recording a conversation. I thought that was really fun. And, and so is that, I assume that wasn't how the rest of the book was written, but again, that also goes to 
you know, sort of one of your primary points in that there's, there's a lot of talking past each other in the United States around the question of race. Um, and, and one of the things that you highlight in the beginning part of the book also is that we talk around race as opposed to talking about race and racism. And, and I'd love for you to sort of talk about how that is also part of our understanding of Black Lives Matter as a social movement and also racism and anti-racism in the United States. So I think Americans are expert at uh, euphemisms, <laughs> that, that we are really good about using all sorts of words uh, in order to avoid using other words like race or racism. Even like when people use the word ethnicity, they're usually using it so they, they can avoid using the word race. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, from my perspective, um, what that means is that if we don't pinpoint the problem, which is racism, then we can't deal with it. And so, you know, I, 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 I always hope to give people the benefit of the doubt in that there are just some people who haven't been exposed to certain facts of life. And so it is confusing about, um, why this kind of, uh, movement might pop up at this particular historical moment. Um, and so, you know, ultimately the, the goal is to, to, to get us on the same page, but then also, um, you know, sometimes you get to the end of the semester, if you tell people all these facts and they just think like, what am I supposed to do? Um, and so, you know, the other thing that, and I think Tehama was really good at spearheading, um, you know, just asking questions, discussion questions, that we can get dialogue going um, because so much of our problem, I think, is that we refuse to talk about it. And sometimes we just don't know what direction to go. And so we make an effort to build in um, places, um, frequently asked questions, discussion questions, other resources that people can go to, because I think that most people want to do better. They want to see an egalitarian society but they don't know what to do next. Right. Um, I, I think all I can add here is that when we started out that first chapter, we wanted to acknowledge that people hear the Black Lives Matter slogan um, and a lot differently depending on who they are. And so we needed to lay out really kind of the geography about race in the United States that, um, that we live really segregated lives and that, you know, we have, segregated, um, social networks. And so when we live in those, in those, um, situations, when we hear different, when we hear something about race, it, it lands on us differently. And so we wanted to broach that immediately. Um, and, and acknowledge that it may not be necessarily hate that's driving, um, divisions and fissures around, around race and racism, but that, um, the people are differently situated. And then we wanted to immediately move on to the idea that there are some uncomfortable facts that we have to face. So it's not just, um, it's not enough to talk about the criminal justice system and it's not enough to talk about policing and the kinds of horrible things that people started seeing on social media with, um, with black people becoming victims of, of police violence and other people who are policing like George Zimmerman. Right. Um, 
but we wanted to connect that to other institutions and um, and practices. So around education and healthcare and the way that people build wealth or don't build wealth. And so we we take the book. The book is is really an opportunity to examine disparities too, structural racism. And, um, and so we kind of, we, we lead with that and we try to thread that needle throughout. And, and I think that's really an important part of first setting up the book. And then also, as you say, sort of threading it throughout that it's not about necessarily always the flashpoints that one sees on the news, but it's, it's, it's longstanding structures, um, that have been in place and never been dismantled in so many ways. Um, and so I wanted to ask you if you could move into some of the, the discussion in the second part of the book, um, particularly the politics of racial progress, um, which, as we know, is not linear, and you make that point. Um, can you talk about this in terms of our understanding of racial progress and not racial progress? Oh, sure. Okay. So um, we regularly are frustrated with the conversations that seem to assume that the past has taken care of a lot of problems. And so we should all be really appreciative that things aren't the way they used to be. And I think that gets everybody really comfortable and they congratulate themselves. And it, it's just not appropriate to do that. It's not appropriate to, to, um, to kind of live that fantasy when people are are dying when people's life chances are hampered because of the structures that we have not changed sufficiently and because of the way that we we um, relate to one another. And so um, given that most of our students know almost nothing about the civil rights movement other than that it happened and that Martin Luther King was part of that and that Rosa Parks was part of that, we felt that we needed to do a little bit of history work and um, and so we decided to, to talk about what happened at the end of the Civil War and to talk about the Reconstruction period and how really radical that was and how it was possible because of the political will to do it. And that when that political will waned and, you know, horrible compromises were made politically between parties, we got an absolute... Um, you know, not only like really backward type of, um, you know, going back in time as far as like what was what was happening with freedoms for people, but um, just the violence that incurred. And and then but also talking that within that moment, um, you know, what what became the Jim Crow moment, that there was always resistance. Right. And so we need to we need to um, be critical about our history. We need to uh, demonstrate that that, as you said, his, um, racial progress is not linear, nor is it inevitable, which means that all of us have to participate. And that was really kind of the impetus between, between or rather for chapter three, because um, it, if we're doing a call to action, we have to explain why, right? It's on all of us to participate. Um, and so that was, that's how we got chapter three going. Candice, what, what else do you want to add? I think typically speaking that, and we've talked about this before, is that Americans are really obsessed with progress and that they are always, you can find what you're looking for. And so, you know, part of the thing about our um, narrative around racial progress is what our um, comparison point is. If our comparison point is 1950, 
then sure, we, we've, got, we've done a lot. If our comparison point is reconstruction, we might think, huh, you know, there were, there were black senators, multiple black senators, uh, you know, there were two black senators soon after the end of slavery. And we didn't see that again until like 2013. Right. So if even that um, the comparison points shape the way we understand progress or if we all sit and think, well, what would a racially egalitarian society look like? And if that's our comparison point, then we also realize that we're not almost there. So, you know, one of the our, our goals was really just for us to sit and encourage people to think about um, why do we get hypnotized by what um uh, 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 historian uh, Theo Harris talks about the allure of the almost there. It seems like we're almost there, so then we can relax a little bit. And, and that's dangerous because then we end up kind of reproducing, embedding even further the inequalities that we see. And when we don't talk about race, we don't talk about racism, um, then then we, we, we become um, even more kind of uh, confused about what it is that we need to do to fix the issues at hand. So, you know, just understanding our history, where we've been and the possibilities, um, it, you know, really is, is a thing that we were hoping to, to, to pin, to pin down and bring home. And, and it's funny that, you know, when we started thinking about this chapter, Obama was still in office and there was this presumption that Hillary Clinton would be the next president. And so as, as we continued writing, then Trump was elected, um, it, it, it became a little bit more clear that, um, you know, people were, first of all, waking up to like, oh, you mean this wasn't just going to go in this direction, right? Like, you know, there's mobilization is really important um, and people's energy is really important to staying on a course um, or a certain type of course. And even though not to say that the Obama administration was in any way perfect um, or linear itself. Um, but it was certainly in a different direction than what the Trump administration um, has brought. And so, and so, yeah, so chapter three kind of became alive in a different way as, as we continued to write it. Um, and, and the nonlinearity became more and more um, clear, I would assume, and somewhat acute. Um, and, and then of course it's followed by, are you upholding white supremacy as the next chapter? Um, and so my question in this regard is, you know, this is, this is where a lot of people, myself included, um, sort of say, huh, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily actively working in the right direction sometimes. Um, and so when you start to define out what is white supremacy in our understanding, um, and also, where is it that we consciously or unconsciously are upholding it? Yeah, I mean, the thing about that is that, you know, if you walk into a room and you ask anyone if they're racist, no one's going to say that they are. And so then we got to figure out, well, if there's no racist, then, then what in the world is going on here? You know, you got the boogeyman or something. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, most I think most people are well intentioned, um, and and that they see their intentions as more important than actual outcomes. Um, and so, you know, our, our hope in chapter four was just really um, to ask people to interrogate their own decision making, their own politics, their own 
communities and their choices about who they, you know, um, decide to live next to, where they decide to send their children to school, where they decide to spend their money, um, and the kind of everyday, what has become common sense scripts um, to explain racial inequalities. So for example, it is a one that people will easily go to is, oh, it's not race, it's class. Um, except that there's plenty of data that shows that um, <laughs> that it's not class, that sure, class matters, but even when we look at similarly situated um, white, black, Latinos, uh, Asian Americans at uh, various income levels, we see strikingly different outcomes in employment and health and wealth, especially. Um, and so, you know, our, our hope in chapter four is just for people to, to in some ways see themselves um, and in small and in, 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 in seemingly small ways. Um, so, for example, that, you know, it's, it's not racist class or when people say I'm colorblind, I don't see race that it's it, it that feels like the right thing to say. It sounds like the right thing to say. But underneath it, um, underneath that claim of colorblindness is that um, you don't see that racism structure, structures people's lives. Um, and, and that kind of um, happy talk um, actually produces more inequality because you are blind to the um, inequalities that exist because of racism in particular. So, you know, and, and, and the last thing to point out is that um, I think that we have come to this spot where you hear people suggest that people of color can't be racist, right? And so if, if we ask, can people of color make political decisions, support candidates um, who, who uh, exacerbate inequalities, if they have a politics that doesn't ameliorate inequalities? What, you know, are, are there people of color who are doing that? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. Um, and so, you know, again, for us to all be self-critical um, so that we can also self-correct um, is, is, I think, one of the major goals in, in that chapter in particular. Absolutely. Um, we, we, thought about, um, we thought about chapter four also as the kind of these scripts that are ready-made and accessible for everybody to use, like the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or green or blue. Sometimes people add polka dotted, right? And they, they, um, it, that's a colorblind script, right? It's a way of, of saying, I'm a good person. Um, it's a way of saying that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think race matters really. And, and when you, when you buy into that, when you're ideologically hooked into that, that means that you are, um, not recognizing that the disparities that exist between racial groups are not the problems of these individuals, right? It's not on poor people. They don't, poor people don't create their poverty, right? Like they're not, they're, there's all these other laws and policies um, at play. And so, so colorblindness is something we wanted to tackle there. The politics of respectability is another matter that we take on throughout the book, but I think we probably examine it the most in chapter four because, um, you know, when people say things like, well, if only he weren't wearing a hoodie, right? This whole pick up your pants type of thing. And these are other scripts that are dangerous because they explain away the violence that people experience in their lives because of things like the way they dress, right? Um, and 
And so we, you know, we lean on um, our, our colleagues, right, in social, in social science, whether they be sociologists or political scientists or historians, even um, what kind of lessons have they taught us, right? So we lean a lot on Bonilla Silva's work. Um, Kathy Cohen's work about secondary marginalization is really important here because, right, if you buy into the politics of respectability, there's people who then live within margins, right? They're not seen as respectable and then therefore somehow their rights and their safety doesn't get recognized and doesn't get prioritized. And so we need to bust up this politics of respectability as useful as it has been in the past for, you know, certain gains. It was always certain gains for certain people, right? There was always somebody else who was left out because they weren't deemed respectable. And so um, chapter four is really us tackling this idea of complicit racism, which is, you know, you may not be actively, um, you know, intentionally hurting anybody. You may not um, be creating disparities because, you know, people in, in the Supreme Court can create disparities a lot more quickly than the average American, right? But, um, but complicit racism is when you either buy into, you know, the common logic of racism um, or that you don't do anything, Right. And you just kind of let it, you kind of let it happen. You don't intervene. And so we wanted to really address that. And, you know, it, it holds us all a little bit more to account. And you, you work on, you work through the question also in this chapter with regard to the issue of diversity, the value of diversity. Um, and, and to some degree, these terminologies that we hear all the time around us um, also uh, in terms of understanding the role of race, structural racism, and questions of class around the meritocracy um, and the American dream, I know it's one of the term, some of the terms that you define in that second chapter with all of the sort of definitions. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how these these sort of dynamics and tropes and and to some degree really embedded concepts um, continue to work in terms of um, white supremacy and embedded racism? Oh, really? You know what? I think even just the, the ones that you point out, meritocracy, diversity, I think those are two good examples of, um, of things that we are taught to value, right? And both of those things actually, um, they sound good, they feel good, but let's think about meritocracy for a second. Meritocracy uh, actually, you know, what it does is it tells us what we should value and the more of it you have, the more you are valued. Um, and so I, I think it's not a, a coincidence that, um, you know, let's say in the college admission situation that we value SAT scores. But, you know, we also know that it is structured in such a way that um, people who are already well off are going to have more, have higher scores, right? That um, your your SAT score tells more about your your family's car model or how much your house is, you know, things like that. Right. Um, and so when we, and it's funny that when people say, well, let's, what if we don't talk about SAT scores, then it becomes like, well, how do you, you know, how do you know who's suited? Well, why was SAT scores the thing that we valued in the first place? 
And so, you know, just kind of interrogating these things that become so common sense to us. Diversity. Diversity has, um, you know, our value of diversity has been kind of flipped on its head. It used to be a question of justice. Diversity, a, a, a setting that is diverse suggests that all the, that the doors are open for all sorts of people um, who uh, to, to walk in, that there is a egalitarianism there. Um, but now diversity is a signal of, um, uh, it, 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 we, we, we value diversity because it helps us learn about each other and learn about is, our experiences. But ultimately, the thing is, is that people of color, especially Black people, they're kind of really well aware about how white people walk through the world. Um, and so the issue of diversity becomes helpful for white people to learn about people of color, not necessarily the other way around. And so I just even, you know, I, I think like these two concepts are examples of things that we learn to value, but ultimately they help people who don't need any more help. They, they help people who are already in dominant positions even more. Um, but then it said that we should all value it because it's good for everybody. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, th these things that become so common sense um, actually uh, lead us to kind of work against our own interests sometimes. Um, maybe we should turn meritocracy on its head, that we should value people who work in, you know, um, our admin assistants or our janitors, right, that those people help our, you know, universities, our companies, our corporations run on a day-to-day -day basis, our teachers, um, our stay-at-home moms, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that if we turn these things around, we might see um, that, the, that the way we currently think about it um, is already helping the people at the top. Yeah, I like a lot of what Candace said. It's so clarifying, and it's um, meritocracy gets used a lot to justify why, why some people have very little, right? And why even some people only have their basic human needs met and that it's okay for us to live in a society where there's so much wealth and yet there are people who are, right? There are, there are children going to school today who did not have breakfast because breakfast was not a possibility in their home, right? Or there are children going to school today who don't have a home at all and, and somehow that's okay, right? Like meritocracy makes it okay for people because they um, will then explain, well, that, that person's parents didn't work hard, um, but other, other people did. And it's just like, what are we talking about here? This is ridiculous. Um, and so we want to, we want to point out the kind of the ridiculous nature of, of meritocracy when there is so much that we could be sharing with each other, right? Um, and that we we value different human lives differently because of what people do and what people wear. And, you know, particularly also, what is the color of their skin? Um, and so we just want to kind of bust that whole thing up. Um, and not to say, right, that hard work in and of itself isn't, you know, like something we do. Like, Candace and I work really hard. We work really hard at the same time. Um, we also think that, you know, other people should have things like food and shelter and healthcare. And that doesn't explain away for us disparities, right? Um, meritocracy for some people was a good alternative to nepotism and other corruption. But, um, 
but it's it, ideologically, it's just not, um, it's not getting us to egalitarianism at all. And I mean, I think that you, you know, you, you weave this through um, most of the book in terms of framing some of the difficulties in, we have to reconfigure thinking um, on these questions of equality. As, as you say, a lot of the time we're talking past each other. What does, what do we mean by equality? What do we mean by freedom? Um, but I also wanted to ask you before we get into the last two chapters, which are kind of more directed towards like what you can do, um, as you've been reading the book, I wanted to ask you about the way that you conclude each chapter, um, with some really useful sort of highlights. Um, you, you recommend podcasts, films, as well as other readings. And you have a full bibliography at the end of the book. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you structured this and decided to include some of these um, components of, you know, more popular culture artifacts, as well as, um, you know, again, scholarly work um, in the end of each chapter. So I think part of it is that we know we don't have all the answers. Um, but we know a lot of really smart people who have more answers than we do. And, you know, again, like I said, I think that most people are really, and and almost all of the people that read our book are people who want to do better, who want to move in, in a direction that would produce a more egalitarian society. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to provide resources and some of those resources, you know, we live all live busy lives. A podcast, you can listen to a podcast while you're cooking dinner. You can listen to a podcast on your, you know, on your commute. Um, that if you, you know, some of us listen to audiobooks. I mean, there's just so many good resources um, out there. I think the other thing about it is that one of the, you know, in addition to writing this book for people who are interested in moving to a more racially progressive um, society is that also there's people who would swear up and down um, that there's just not enough resources, you know, that there's not enough information about something that, uh, that you know, maybe our, our, our facts are questionable. And so really just to back those up, right, that we um, use rigorous research and we rely on um, the, the phenomenal research of people across disciplines and that they could indeed um, tap into those, right? And so I guess in that part is really just to make ignorance, claims of ignorance, illegitimate. That you can, you don't have to read a, you don't have to read Ibram uh, Kendi's 800 page stamp, but you can Which go- Which is a great book, but it's a long one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can go, you can, you can watch a, 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 a a documentary um, on one of your streaming, uh, you know, subscriptions. Right. And and there's certain things that we describe in the book that sometimes they need to be seen for themselves, I think, for some people to fully appreciate. So in chapter one, where we talk about, you know, how certain policies like, um, you know, redlining, right, like how it creates racial disparities in, in wealth accrual. We, we put at the end of that chapter a website that these really great um, scholars in Richmond have put together called American Panorama. And so you can look at all of these maps 
um, original maps that were used for redlining purposes and the original notes that people were making about the composition of neighborhoods and see for yourself the very now anachronistic language that people are using to describe, you know, um, what was a good investment and what was not, right? And that, you know, to talk about certain people, like just, it just, it blows my mind. And I, I think everyone should go look at that, right? And I think everybody should go, you know, um, watch these films, right? I Am Not Your Negro, Slave by Another Name. Like these are excellent resources. Um, and, we, you know, if, if, if so much of what we talk about is about like an anti-hoarding um, of resources just for the United States, then like what we're also doing is anti-hoarding within our book about like, please read other people, right? Go and have other conversations, go and, you know, and also at the end of the, at the end of the chapters we put, there's at least five um, questions, discussion questions. And we're just imagining like, how could that be used in a classroom, um, whether it be college or even high school for some of them, how could they be used in a church, a synagogue or mosque? How could they be used in a book club? You know, like we, we really want people to make use of this book, right? It's, it's a resource. And, and I, I love the way that it's set up in that regard, because each chapter can stand alone in that regard in terms of providing information. It has a narrative component to it, explaining um, dimensions of racism and um, particularly an understanding of Black Lives Matter. But I really find that the way you set it up, it's really accessible. And as you say, it's anti-hoarding. Here are more resources. Um, go learn. Yeah, if I could add one other thing. We, um, we also bolded. So the words in chapter two that we, we take time to define, we bold those words throughout the book so that if you're, if you're finding yourself being like, hey, what does that mean again? Right. You, it's a cross-reference. You can go yeah. back to the chapter and find it again. Right. You can start to see the connections between concepts. And I thought that was, again, as I was reading through it, I was like, oh, why are these words bolded? Oh, that's why they're bolded. That I, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's like, a, it's a, it's an embedded hyperlink. Um, <laughs> the original hyperlink, right? <laughs> Bold. <laughs> the typesetter. Um, and so the last two chapters are to some degree more clearly directed towards action um, and, and, you know, sort of thinking about how to be anti-racist, how to approach some of these dialogues. Could you talk a little bit about those two chapters um, and, and to some degree as they are the coda to the book? So chapter five, it went through some things. <laughs> you could ask us about that later. But, you know, the thing is, is what we wanted to drive home in chapter five is that we tend to do a lot of focusing on two things. One, um, we tend to do a lot of focusing on uh, making comparisons with Black Lives Matter with uh, the civil rights movement. And the way that we understand the civil rights movement is that there was one guy who you know, led everybody to the promised land and to the, you know, Civil Rights Act, and it was Martin Luther King. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, the Civil Rights Movement was, uh, you know, it, it, it culminated in, in, in some ways, but there are also issues at local levels. And so one is just to say um, that it doesn't have to be one leader, that people in their communities can make a difference. The second thing that we wanted to highlight in chapter five in particular is that the, 
to, to bring back questions about the Constitution is that the Constitution uh, outlines who gets what power, and most powers are left to the people and the states. And so what that means is, is that a lot of the inequality that you see in your community happened at the state and local level. And so if you want to undo them, they have to be undone at the local and state level. Policing, schools, uh, you know, waste uh, placement, um, all, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and so really just to kind of direct people's focus um, and hopefully to make it more manageable, right? That, um, you know, I can help fix this issue in my community and my representatives are accountable to people like me. Um, and I think that, you know, that wash, you know, that DC Congress distance makes people feel like things can't be changed when they can, that it doesn't have to be like this. And that there are plenty of localities who are making moves, who are doing things differently, and that those can be used as models for your own community. Yeah, um, we, we joked a little bit that, you know, this is, this is very much a chapter about federalism. And this is like the most obvious where we are political scientists and we're thinking about this, but it's like, how do you make federalism kind of sexy to, you know, how do you, how do you bring that into the lives of your undergrads who are like glazing over by the sound of it? (laughs) And, um, and so, you know, we want to say that local power is real power, right? And that, that. For, you know, if we do want to look at, at the time period prior and during civil rights movement, right, that that the argument of states' rights was used to keep, uh, right, certain things status quo, right, to keep a racial hierarchy, but that we can turn it on its head. There's a lot of turning it on its head in our book. And so, you know, we can use the local to make it more egalitarian. It doesn't, you know, to be anti-hierarchical. And so you get a lot of information about you know, how the vote can, can empower us in different ways, but also to think about how organizing on the local level is powerful and how, you know, you can, you can act politically by going to, um, you know, thinking about how you participate in the economy. Do you want to um, boycott or boycott certain industries in your local area because, you know, doing so will will create more opportunities for people, or will bring a conversation to the table that needs to be had. Um, how can you organize to you know address like empty lots in your in your neighborhoods that can be used to instead of you know places that people stay away from can be used where people convene so that you can have like community gardens and that pe- you know there can be like a real civic life, right? And so. And so that's that's chapter five, you know, and, and where Canada started this idea of that there was one person who led a movement like, no, like it was multiple people, people who will never be acknowledged and they're working together. And we need to adopt that, you know, um, we we and this is a bit of a segue into chapter six, but the idea that we are leaderful, you know, that, that there's lots of people who are ready to get involved and they're capable of it. Um, it's really we really need to think about how how we participate in democracy and how we use power um, and that we, we can all play a role here. That's that's chapter five, you know, um, that that state budgets are state values. So, you know, what are your values? What do you want to see your money spent on? Right. And, yeah. And then chapter 
Go ahead. Go ahead. I just wanted to ask because Candace, you opened this up. You said this chapter, hmm, it's. <laughs> well, it was a lot longer. And, and I mean, the thing is, is that the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that so much power is in local government, right? And that we tend to think about um, the 2020 presidential election, but 2020 is going to have thousands of elections. Right. That um, and and I, I and we really just wanted to drill down. Right. That um, the way that money is spent, the way that even where we can vote, that's a state issue. It's not a federal issue. Um, and so, you know, really, we wanted to go on and on about all of the things that happen at the state level, because there are so many things. And our editor told us, no. <laughs> so that was the that's the background of of. Of chapter five. Okay. And, and chapter six takes you even, you know, sort of beyond the, the sort of political science analysis into what, what can I do? How, how can I take some of the stuff that I've learned and, and what can I do? Um, and did you integrate students? I think you did integrate a lot of students into some of the understandings here. I mean, the thing is, is that we are inspired by our students and we're inspired by the people that we talk with most in our communities. And, the, you know, as I mentioned before, is that, you know, you can tell people all of these facts around inequality and then uh, people think that the issue is too big for anyone to deal with. Right. Um, and so our goal in Chapter six was to say there are um, there, there are little and big ways that each of us can. Um, can make a difference, but also, and, and really Tahima led this chapter and it was appropriate for her to do so because she's more of an optimist than I am. But I think that, um, I think that what I learned from, from Tahima in, in this process is that it is really important for us to, um, even if we think that, a, 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 you know, a racially egalitarian, a post-racist society is long time in the future with a lot of bumps in the road, that the main thing is that you orient yourself toward where you think you should go and start making the steps. And so um, I see chapter six as, um, as, as 21, um, you know, uh, affirmations to push you in that direction. Um, yeah. Tamer, you want to, Sure. Um, you know, when we started chapter six, we, we thought about, okay, so this is the end of the book. And then we started thinking about like the end of our semesters. And so since both, uh, we both teach classes on race and racism in different ways. And I've been very guilty of teaching a semester's course where I am trying in, you know, that 15 weeks, I'm trying to give students who may never take this topic up again. I'm trying to get them to understand how really ingrained racism is. And, and I have gotten to the end of semesters where we've had great conversations, but the students are so overwhelmed that they're just like, I mean, depression is not, I'm not being euphemistic or, 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 or sorry, rather I'm not being over-exaggerated. Like some students are really upset, you know? And so um, we were like, okay, what, what kind of thing can we write to give them a sense of like, okay, what can we do? What's next? And um, so we're, you know, some, some things that got worked into that chapter are things that we just weren't able to address earlier, right? Like we weren't able to address earlier that Washington, D.C. 
Um, you know, what a ridiculous situation Washington, D.C. is in where it's not a state that it has to go to Congress to get, you know, everything passed, all their local decisions made. Right. And they're currently in a fight for statehood. Right. Um, and, you know, let's also think about how D.C. is a majority black area. And it has been, even though it's becoming very gentrified very quickly. Um, you know, I mean, what does that say when your own capital, like the people who live there aren't fully represented, right? Um, to think about Puerto Rico, right? To think about other other places, the Commonwealth. I mean, like what's going on here? Like, do you really think this is democracy? What can we do about this? Um, but it's also, um, this chapter is also a, a, an example to say, you know, a life of collective struggle is a good life right? That we have to think of ourselves as being connected to each other and working together, you know, there to, and, and also to kind of like, kind of check vanity a little bit, you know, we have the whole, um, beware of worker than thou itis, you know, um, that, that even as we're trying to like be the best type of anti-racist we can be, we need to remember that the people we encounter are at different times in their life. So how can we incorporate them into building a movement? You know, how can we bring them into the fold um, instead of trying to shame them, right? What can we do relationally to where we can change power dynamics? We think about, um, we talk about how reparations can mean many things. So there's a very kind of like traditional way of thinking about reparations as far as, um, you know, um, money, like cutting checks, like, you know, and maybe that's even possible. And maybe that's something that should be happening because we can actually, um, there's all kinds of archives that allow us to find descendants of people who were screwed over, um, not only by slavery, but even like in reconstruction period when the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, when that tanked, what happened to all these people and their investments, right? Like we can find their descendants, but we can also think about reparations, maybe in terms of something we call micro reparations, which are relational. And we talk about how Maxine Waters said, and I'm reclaiming my time. Like maybe reclaiming time and conversations and, and not being shut out at, relationally is a way that we can repair, um, you know, unjust power dynamics. Right. Um, and so, so it's, it's enough. There's affirmations, there's keeping us on our toes and there's the encouragement to like, be for something, not just against something to dream big. And that, you know, a lot of times you try to be really pragmatic, but we need to have a bigger vision. We need to allow ourselves to dream big. We also need to allow ourselves to not be perfect all the time. So, um, so there's a lot going on in chapter six, but we think that it, um, it probably does a better job of getting us to where we want to be at the end of a semester than maybe what we were doing previously. At least I could say that for myself. Yeah, I think I think chapter six is fascinating and really helpful. Um, as as you say, it is kind of optimistic, and it also lets you be like, I make mistakes. I'm I I'm not going to be able to do this all by myself. Kind of mm-hmm. sort of thinking also. Um, right. So this is a great book, and I love it. Um, and I highly recommend it to anybody who's listening. And so I want to know what each of you are working on now as a follow-up or not a follow-up to Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. (laughs) To be honest, I think I, I would like to take a little bit of a break. This book was actually inspired by a book that I started writing with Krista Santee called Racial Stasis. Um, And I learned a lot about how young people are thinking about race and racism. And so um, 
So I'm, I, I'm kind of not working on anything right now. No, that's not true. That's not true. I, that's not true. I am working on um, uh, some work with Rebecca Kreitzer on um, access to reproductive health care. Yes, that is what I'm doing right now. I go from one depressing subject to another. <laughs> and you're also thinking about, thinking about, maybe you're not working, but you're thinking about what diversity means to a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah. Another depressing <laughs> area of study. <laughs> These are the bubbling thoughts of Candace Watt Smith. Yes. And to um, Emma? Oh, sure. Okay. So I just this week, I put under contract with um, NYU Press, again, um, Yay! Um, my, my manuscript called Breaking the Racial Contract, Privilege, Awareness, and the Politics of Whiteness. Um, this is a long way from my dissertation, but that's where the idea um, started. And, um, and so I'm doing a, it's a mixed methods approach. There's survey data, um, a survey that I administered on my own um, that's focused on on white Americans and really how um, their awareness of r- their own racial privilege is related to anti-hierarchical politics and also thinking, well, what are, you know, what are some of the antecedents to this kind of way of thinking about that, thinking about whiteness, first of all, at all, and then thinking about whiteness as being advantageous Um the other part of it is qualitative. I interviewed um, white anti-racist activists and, and really kind of soaking in the ways that they think about their whiteness and how they manage that, um, that identity and what kind of things that they do um, and what do, they, what do they think needs to be done in, in, this, in this country to get us to a better place. Um, so, so that is... That is now fully drafted, and I will be revising it quite a bit. And when it comes out, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it? I would love to. Please. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It was a pleasure to speak with Tahema um, Lopez-Bunyasi and Candice Watts-Smith about their new um, book, Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. This is published by... New York University Press in 2019. I assume one can buy it at the NYU website. Um, any place else that you'd want to give a shout out to? Well, we found out that we, you know, bookstores that we love, like Powell's, which um, there's, I know there's one in Oregon, I think there's one in Chicago. Um, Politics and Prose has it in DC, cool. which is, you know, kind of our local thing over here. Um, Candice, you got any shout outs? Nope. Okay. No. There's also Amazon, but we want you to go to the to the press. Um, yeah. There's actually, you can get discounts right now on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So That's definitely website. if you want to buy this book, which I recommend, New York University Press website, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you both for joining me today on the New Books Podcast. Thank you Thank so you. much. My pleasure. <laughs>